Good evening, Ian Urbino. Welcome to Outward Unleashed. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you for asking. Um, maybe for our uh, listeners and viewers, maybe you can just let them know exactly what it is you do. What keeps you busy? Uh, I'm a journalist. I'm based in Washington, D.C., and I am the director of the Outlaw Ocean Project, which is a journalism organization that looks at lawlessness at sea around the world, crimes uh, offshore. Right. I mean, this is a obviously a huge, huge issue, but it's a very specialized interest. What what may, uh, first caught your eye about this issue? What made you interested in it? Uh, so I spent 17 years at the New York Times and the last doing investigative work for them. And um, the last couple of years was spent on a series called The Outlaw Ocean. Um, my exposure had been before I was a journalist, I was an anthropologist and I'd spent some time um, uh, on fishing vessels. Uh, and so I sort of got exposed to the wild world that is. Yeah. And, and what kind of things are, are we typically talking about here in terms of the crimes that take place at sea? Because for most people, it was, it was oh, I suppose, a really foreign kind of um, concept, this idea of crime at sea. What are the main things you would see or uh, that would be flag up for you? Yeah. I mean, so um, this reporting began in 2014. And one of its ambitions was to sort of um, broaden people's imagination, their understanding of. Um, what happens out there? I think um, traditionally people think Somali private piracy, you know, plastic pollution, um, the BP spill. These are sort of big headlines that burn uh, their way into your consciousness. Um, you know, what what I looked at in the original series, and then a book, and then a podcast, and doc series, and now what we do is uh, repo men of the sea who steal ships on behalf of banks and mortgage lenders, um, abortion providing at sea and sort of doctors who go to the high seas to evade national laws. Um, so as to provide, um, abortions, um, arms trafficking, human slavery, intentional dumping of oil, illegal fishing, illegal whaling, um, you name it, it happens out there. Wow. God, that is a lot. So, I mean, you say that doctors would, would go out there to kind of, I suppose, you know, find a way to circumnavigate laws regarding abortion. I mean, how, how common is that? I mean, that sounds horrendous. It's it's not too common. And 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 depending on your view on the issue, it's either horrendous or, or a life-saving, you know, um, service. Um, but, um, you know, the, the chapter in the book and the podcast series focused on one woman in particular, a doctor named uh, Rebecca Gompertz, who has a, a ship uh, called Women on Waves, and she specializes in going to places, countries that have really, really strict laws uh, and getting women um, who are in need and um, ferreting them out to the international water line. So beyond the 200 mile mark, uh, where the law shifts to the law of the land, you know, sort of the flag state law. So in her case, she was an Austrian flagship and abortions legal in Austria. So if she's picking up women, say off the coast of, you know, Mexico, uh, for example, or Ireland um, years ago, um, she would take them out to the 201 mile mark. These are not medical abortions. These are um, RU-40, A6. These are pills, um, but she would administer the pills and then bring the women back. I mean, this, uh, I mean, it, I mean, I'm of the personal view that this is tragic that these people can't get this kind of medical care in their, their own country where it's safe and they have to kind of leave land for it. That seems almost insane to me. But I mean, does this add a, a, another dimension to their safety concerns as well? Obviously, being out at sea for a medical procedure. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite. Um, I mean, these are typically places where it's not just illegal, but they're you know life and death consequences. Not just the, the the medical ones, but also what would happen to you if the government found out you had uh, done this. So it's it's these are pretty extreme cases, and um, yeah, I, I quite agree. This is um, surprising that um, people have to go to these lengths, and you know the the way the world is going, um, uh, it's her services are becoming even more and more. Uh, in demand, we'll put it that way. So, I mean, what kind of um, pressure does she get from external forces? I mean, wh where is the legal line here? Is is what she's doing entirely legal? Is it a grey area? What kind of pressure does she face? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's an interesting question, and somewhat depends on who you're asking um, about the legality of it. So, um, most folks that I talk to, you know, kind of um, independent you know, law professor types um, who are apart from her said that what she's doing is legal um, uh, in most jurisdictions in the world where they have laws against abortion. Because again, maritime law and international law is its own thing. And the minute you do get outside of a country's domestic waters, then their laws on these matters don't apply. Um, there are some countries who take a different view and say that in the very act of her going into the national waters to fetch these women's to knowingly then take them out of the waters, she's breaking laws. But th those have never stuck. When her ship has been detained or she's been detained, she's always been released ultimately with with help. Usually banned from the country subsequently, but um, but uh, in terms of convictions aimed at her, they have not stuck. How does it work in terms of monitoring what takes place at sea? Then, in terms of crimes and things like that. I mean, obviously, a lot of crime. I'm assuming it must take place out there because they feel there is less chance of getting caught. Is is it is it far more difficult to kind of regulate these things at sea? Hugely so. I mean, the high seas are this sort of lawless frontier where, partially because the laws are few, partially because what laws or rules exist are murky but most especially that there are no cops, right? Laws are only as good as their enforcement and there is no police force that patrols international waters. Uh, and so um, the fact that you're so far from land, if you want to put someone in shackles, if you want to disappear them overboard, if you want to beat them, if you want to steal their wages and claim that they didn't do the job, what have you, if you want to take more fish than you should, all these things um, you probably can get away with. Can I? Yes. Okay, give me one second. No problem. Yeah, so uh, Ian's obviously, I think he's just got to take a quick call. So this is a great opportunity for you guys to hammer some incredibly insightful questions into the comment section uh, about crime at sea, various forms, what it looks like, how dangerous it might be to cover it. Sorry about that. That's okay, no problem. Um, so... I'm just just uh, put this out to the the comment section to get some good some good questions for you. But of course, everyone's mind whenever we talk about crime at sea instantly goes to pirates, and I think obviously I think people's understanding of that have progressed slightly since the kind of pirates the Caribbean perception of pirates. What does modern day piracy look like in that sense? What what's the main source of it? What kind of form does that take? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, so um, the most recent. Um, version of it is the Somali piracy uptick, which you saw really around 2007 to 2010. This was when there was a huge increase in that. 
And that was a specific version. It mainly targeted merchant vessels, you know, cargo ships that were having to go through a rough neighborhood and were in striking distance. Typically, those were four or five men in a boat, a, you know, sort of outboard motor boat that would go. And, you know, folks saw Captain Phillips. There was a pretty accurate rendering of, of a very famous case um, of that. They take the ship, they take the men, they use it for ransom. Um, that fell off to a large degree, 2010, 11, for a bunch of reasons, um, but it hasn't fallen off elsewhere. So the other side of Africa, Nigerian waters, has a pretty intense problem. It looks a little bit different, but um, it's still essentially theft at sea of, of ship and crew. Um, you have places in the world that are really off radar, coast of Bangladesh. Um, it's a different version. These are sort of organized roving gangs who essentially extort um, foreign fishing vessels. If they want to pass in the waters, they've got to pay a fee to these guys. They're all, and in their view, they're sort of local tax collectors for the near shore province. Um, but in the view of others who already pay the federal government, they're extortionists, they're, they're pirates. Um, so there, that's the typical um, version it looks like these days. There's not as much kidnapping. There is a lot of sort of ransom holding for a short period of time until some, something is paid, but not as much bringing folks to land and holding them in camps, as was the case in Somalia. How many times have you, have you been out there in, 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 the, in the course of your investigations? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for a decade and I go out, you know, uh, to see for investigations usually two to three times a year. Um, the last one we just finished was a four year investigation of um, serious crimes in the Chinese distant water fishing fleet. And so I went to high seas Falkland Islands, high seas Galapagos, the sea border with South Korea and the coast of West Africa, four separate trips uh, with the with a goal of getting on board Chinese fishing vessels and talking to the crew and seeing what was going on. And we succeeded in getting on board those vessels and and investigating that. Um, but, you know, on average, about two, three times a year, I'm heading out. I'm, I'm about to head out to Antarctica for a month and then um, to high seas Seychelles um, for another investigation. Wow. I mean, that, that Chinese aspects of it really fascinates me. I mean, that the fact that you managed to get on a boat, how exactly do you manage to do something like that? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, China is not particularly well known for its openness to journalists and, in, and people poking its nose in their affairs. Yeah, that was probably the toughest um, challenge we've ever um, come up against. That's why it took four long years to pull it off. Um, so the reporting tactics um, went as follows. You find the fishing ground where there's a large concentration. I named the four. Those are all squid fishing grounds. You're talking about two, 300 huge industrial ships in one 50 mile radius. Um, it takes a couple of weeks to get out there. They're really far from shore. You get out there, everyone is spooked by the fact that there's some random non-fishing vessel around. And that puts a lot of people on alert, especially uh, a Western vessel in, an, in a purely Chinese area. There might be a couple of Taiwanese or South Korean, but mostly these are Chinese vessels. So already folks are on their toes and skeptical. You then, stage one is you make contact. I had a Chinese language you know, videographer with me, so he was doing all the translation. You're bridge to bridge con uh, talking to the uh, captains if they engage. You try to warm them up. That takes a couple of days. Talk with them. Innocuous questions. How's it going? Any guys sick? Any injuries? Are the fish running well? Etc. Nothing that scares them. We're journalists. We never engage in deception. So we always say who we are and what we're doing. Um, if that works and they warm up a little bit, then you get in a fast um, boat, which is a small skiff outboard motor boat. Um, and you get a little closer because usually you get out there on a big ship. 
Uh, we get a little closer, so it's line of sight. They can see you. You're waving at them. You've got a handheld radio. You're calling up to the radio. Hey, here we are again, just documenting the work you're doing. How's it going? Blah, blah, blah. That usually takes a couple days. You're just not being aggressive, nothing too pushy. If they don't spook then, then you hit them with the question, hey, we know you guys have been out here a year and a half, year. Um, we've, we would love to be able to come on board, break bread with you. We've got fresh fruit fresh vegetables. We know you probably don't, uh, would like to offer as a gift, any chance we can come on board nine out of 10 say hell no. Um, but one of them, well, you know, some of them say sure. And that's, you know, what got us through and, and we were able to get on board those vessels that way you get on board. Look, if you're on board the vessel, you're there on the invitation of captain, nothing's going to happen to you, you know, cause he's boss God, you know, on board. And so, and normally, you know, everyone is very civil and open and shocked to see you and and offering you cigarettes. And we got a run of the ship. You know, he said, go where you want. Um, normally, he puts a minder with you. So his first mate is shadowing you um, to make sure that crew don't say anything they're not supposed to. But in a couple of cases, we had crew, the minder would leave and crew got candid, including, hey, could you rescue us? We're being held against our will. They've got our passports. We've been beaten. Pretty severe stuff that gets told when opportunities emerge. Um and then the only other thing we did in this reporting was, you know, I'd say four out of 10 ships when we got close ran, they spooked and they pulled up their nets and bolted. So then we put a fast boat in the water and follow them. And we put an, a note, this is crazy, but we, we found we would write a note in Bahasa. So Indonesian, Chinese, and English. A lot of the crew before COVID were Indonesian. And so we'd write a note in a bottle, put it, weigh it down with rice, have some cigarettes, hard candy, put a top on it, little styrofoam buoy, and then get close enough so I could throw it on the back of the ship. The crew are back there gawking at you. Who are these guys chasing us? They would open up the bottle, read the note, and they would write notes back. They'd answer the questions. And then they'd put it back in the bottle, throw it back. And so we had some really interesting interactions that sometimes put their phone numbers of their family back home. Could you tell them I'm okay? Could you tell them I'm not okay? What have you? So we interviewed folks through message and bottle um, in, in the cases of some ships. And that's why it just took, took an ungodly amount of time to pull it off. That is extraordinary. I have so many questions in, in response to that. I mean, I suppose the first one, the obvious one is, I mean, the, the, the fact that you said that nine out of 10, 10 of them bolt makes perfect sense to me because people are out there you know engaging in illegal activity they're going to naturally be suspicious and want to avoid any outsiders or strangers what what is actually in it for the people who accept your invitation invite you on board or give you information why why would they do that yeah i mean the only thing i would i would tweak in what you said is most of them are actually not um engaging in illegal activity while we're there um they're on the high seas and they're typically mostly following what rules exist. The bad stuff they're doing is usually when we're not watching, you know, um, and we can find satellites and ways to document that. And we did. Um, it's, it's a, the, your core question is one that's kind of traveled with me for three decades of doing investigative journalism. People want to talk. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and if they size you up as a straight shooter, um, even if they say, if they know they're saying things that, um, you, they think you might not agree with. Um, it's really about their read of you. And so that's why it's really hard to do this kind of exchanges through a translator because they're, I don't know exactly what he's saying and he doesn't know exactly what I'm saying, but he's watching me, reading me. Um, and I, I think, um, furthermore, a lot of these folks, um, say, look, we're as curious about you as you are about us. And uh, we're bored and we'd love to 
kind of represent our country and our workforce by talking about the hard work and important work we do, even if you might think our conditions are a bit brutal. And even if you might think that we're engaged in illegal activities, we have a different take on some of those laws, you know, as often Chinese fishermen do. So it, it's um, it's usually just a sort of human instinct that folks, um, you know, will size you up and say, sure, come on board. But my ground rules are often they lay ground rules like you can't name me the captain. You can't name my ship. But if you and, and if I tell you to get out of the way or get off my vessel, you're going to get off my vessel. Um, and if they if they believe you when you say, OK, then you can get those guys to let you on board. It's fascinating. And I suppose as well, that this doesn't come without any personal uh, potential risks to your safety as well. I mean, how much of that's playing in the back of your mind when you're you're reaching out to people? You're not sure why they're there, what they're up to, what they're capable of, how they may be perceiving you and you're, you're trying to kind of make contact with them. I mean, are, are there ways that you can, you know, look after your safety? Do you have plans in place if things go wrong? Yes, to all those. Um, there is risk, story by story. Uh, in doing this, the extremely bad things or dangerous things that have ever happened to me have always been on land. So two years ago, we were in Libya and taken by a militia and pretty severely abused. That was on land, even though I had a crew at sea on the same investigation. Somalia, some stuff went down. Borneo, Mexico, always on land. At sea, the risk tends not to be that guy's going to do me harm. Um, it Because you're not on that guy's ship unless he said you could be there. And um, so you're probably going to be okay in that sense. What's risky in this reporting at sea are the conditions, right? So the the this is an industrial workplace without kind of OSHA, you know, like protections. The, the deck is slippery. It's going up and down like an elevator, you know, three floors at every moment of the day and a sort of fun house floor that's teetering left and right. It's a lot of sharp gear, huge equipment moving. You're pulling 20 hour days. It's the middle of the night. They're not paying attention to you. If you fall overboard, then no one's going to notice. Um, there's electrified stuff that they use to zap very big catch so it doesn't hurt folks. So they've got live wires, places, extremely hot pipes. So there's a chance of infection and there's a chance of like that kind of injury um, that's, that makes this kind of reporting really dangerous. But the harm, the physical harm has usually been in conflict zones that, that we go to in these stories where folks don't like you and they want to do something to you. Or it's it's 2 a.m., you're interviewing a, a captain because you're trying to get him to take you out to sea and you're at a bar and you're getting a little sauced with him because you got to break the ice. You got to walk home after that. It's 2 a.m. in some shithole in a suburb of, you know, Songkla, Thailand, and you're going to get jumped. You know, like there's a good chance that you're just going to stick out. So those are the real threats you got to be on your toes about. Um, and then the hygienic stuff, like I said, infections. If I'm doing a long in bed on a Chinese, a South Korean squid vessel, you know, and I'm going to be there for a month, I got to be really on top of my game to not get food poisoning or any infections because those guys are not taking me back to 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 to, to land. So I got to have my own kit and I got to be kind of just watching for small things that could become big problems. How long have, I mean, what's the longest you've ever been out at sea? Month and a half, which is nothing compared to these guys. I mean, again, the threats I face, these guys are on two to three year contacts. Sometimes they don't come to shore for that long. Uh, I, the longest I've stayed out is a month and a half on some pretty gross ships, but still nothing like the what these workers deal with. That's incredible. I mean, how, how do they manage to say stay self-sufficient for that amount of time than at sea? 
motherships. So the the sort of last two decades, as near shore fish stocks have collapsed, fishing vessels go much further out to catch their quota. And the only way that's economically feasible, gas um, and manpower are the two basic, biggest expenses. And the only way you can pull that off is if you stay out there and don't come to shore. So motherships, refrigeration vessels go out to them. They take their catch. They refuel them. They give them extra parts. Maybe they some take some old guys and bring some new guys. But the fishing vessels stay out there and keep fishing nonstop. And the catch is brought back to shore and shipped back to wherever it's going, you know, Thailand or Taiwan or China or Argentina. And that's when it's processed. So that's how the, the fishing vessels can just keep going. Wow. I mean, is the, uh, obviously, while you're out there, you'll be documenting a lot of these digitally video footage, photographs, you know, notes, things like that, audio. Uh, how, I, I mean, I would be constantly panicking that I have all this data and all this information or in a very precarious situation that I could lose at any moment. How do you safeguard that? And how do you obviously make sure that's backed up as soon as possible? I mean, sometimes not so well. I mean, when we were taken by the militia in Libya, we lost a huge portion of incredibly amazing footage because those guys took our stuff and oh. destroyed it. And um, But mostly at sea, we've got um, satellite linkups. It's a small pipeline for data. So big video files and stuff like that, you can't. But I have a pretty rigid regime on myself and whatever one or two videographers I bring, which is like on a daily basis, we got to be putting stuff up in the cloud in case something goes down. And staff that's back on shore is verifying, okay, we got today, you know, we got yesterday's delivery of notes and and footage and stuff like that. And um, so we're usually uploading that stuff by satellite, um, uh, not the high grade video footage because those files are too big, but notes and audio files and that kind of stuff stills, uh, we can get that stuff in the cloud on a daily basis just to make sure we don't lose it. Wow. And I mean, uh, as long as you, I hope I'm not crossing any lines asking this question with you, but this is you in very dangerous situations for long periods of time. It's incredibly time consuming, I imagine, you know, physically, emotionally. Is this something you can fit in well with your personal life? Do you, do you, have, do you ever struggle with the fact that maybe when you return to quote unquote normal life, you miss a little bit of this <laughs> on the scene? Yeah, uh, you should. I'm not letting you ask that question to my wife and my son or my mother. You know, they, they would have very different question answers for you. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, uh, look, it's, again, let's keep it all in perspective. Like, I, if you put one of these guys, a Cambodian 18-year-old, you know, who's on a two-year tour on a vessel where he doesn't even speak the language of the captain and he's debt bonded and his passport's taken, then what I can complain about pales, right, in comparison to him. Because I know I'm getting out and I've got, you know, um, a passport to protect me, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, it's pretty... Um, exhausting. Uh, and I need to be careful sometimes of staying in theater, you know, kind of in the field too long and um, not getting too worn down emotionally. I try to, um, like I said, the hygienic stuff is really key, um, but also the mental health stuff. So routines, pretty strict about every day doing some sort of exercise, even on the vessels in my room, you know, just something to get some endorphin poor man's mental health meds on board. Um, and, and then also regimenting the day so I can kind of keep track of time and where I am in the bigger picture of things. Um, and I don't drink, you know, um, uh, when I'm reporting, uh, because it's, you know, just, just little things like that. Um, it, it, that's a problem actually, because alcohol is a great, you know, icebreaker, uh, and it can really help you as a reporter. But, um, if I'm going to do a long haul, 
just the cumulative effect of, of alcohol um, can really catch up with me weeks later. Uh, so just little things like that I, I've learned over the years for myself that seem to help me be able to do this. Wow. I mean, this is a general question in terms of investigative journalism. What What is it that drives that desire for you? I mean, obviously people could do it solely on topics that they find absolutely fascinating and want to live in that world. Others have like a burning desire to expose something. What What is the main drive behind the things that you pay attention to? So, so I went, I left anthropology um, and became a journalist because I wanted to do the very thing I'm finally now doing and have been for a decade. Um, uh, I didn't, I never wanted to be a beat reporter. I think it's extremely valuable to tell the public what happened yesterday, what should we think about it? And let me hear from all sides. I wanted to do investigative, which is what's broken, how can light, you know, be intensely shed on it fairly, rigorously, prosecutorially, but nonetheless, um, looking for things that really beg out for a, a fix. Um, that's what motivated me in, in general to, to this profession. Um, and this particular sliver of it um, captivated me because number one, and you can relate as a journalist, it's rare to find virgin snow, you know, like everything is trampled, you know, so, so much is done and redone and redone. And yet you have this space out there, 50 million people work at sea. It's two thirds of the planet, you know, and, and yet very little journalism comes from that space or about that space. So I thought, wow, this is unusual that I've found a realm that I can really own, you know, and really specialize in and find stories that no one else has touched. That's really exciting. And then urgent stories, you know, stories that are, you know, really important because people are dying, you know, um, and that motivates me too. Uh, I think the combination of all that is what um, hooked me. Wow. And how do you maintain your objectivity? Because obviously you're dealing with real people there. They have real conflict stories, you know, uh, tragedies in terms of people being held against their will and things like that. And you, you're a human being, obviously, you're not a robot. You've got to build some sort of rapport with them, some sort of relationship. How do you kind of build that rapport and build a personal relationship with these people then have to put on the journalist hat of pure objectivity in the mm -hmm. way you cover it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, pure objectivity is probably something that's a bigger discussion, you know, its existence and what it means. But I, I know your point. Um, so what I try to do is, um, uh, first of all, I have a lot of respect for the people on the receiving end of the journalism and respect that if you do write by them, um, which is to say you rigorously, rigorously try to represent a lot of different sides, even ones you personally don't agree with, but you rigorously, even ones that aren't willing to talk to you, but you're kind of acting as their lawyer in spite of them. If you do write by that mission, your readers will think better of you and they'll make a decision for themselves. So you bring rigor um, in the sort of 360 um, degree angle ambition. So that means like, look, for me, it's not a subjective issue. Rape and murder are bad. Right. So I don't need to like be relativist about calling murder bad uh, or captivity bad. So I can be subjective on that. But trying to understand why a captain from his perspective would engage in performative violence 
what are the fears that motivate him to do it? And don't be lazy and just say he's a bad person and he's evil. He might be that too, but there's probably something else at work there from his perspective. So, but these captains don't want to talk to me. Okay, so I've got to report around them because they don't want to engage with me because they're afraid of me because they think I'm not going to represent them well and figure out like, oh, and then six months later, I realize, oh, wait, those guys have lots of reasons. One of which is there are 40 Cambodians that are young. There are four of them, they're Thai officers and they're older. If the 40 guys get together and overthrow them, those guys are dead. So they're doing performative violence on the crew so as to keep them from mutiny you know, keep them in order. Do I agree with that? No. Is it wrong to kill? For sure. Should you not beat your workers? Definitely. But do I understand better why captains do it from their perspective? Yes. Should I present that to the reader? Yes. Okay. So that's the line I try to walk. Like murder is bad, but let's understand what this guy was thinking about when he engaged in murder to scare the rest of these other guys. What was his game? And that's where I think you do right by the readers. Um, if you can walk that line, I don't always succeed, but that's my goal. Yeah, no, that's a great point. There's a huge difference between obviously understanding behavior and endorsing behavior, obviously. And it can obviously get you in trouble when you're kind of picking away at taboos and trying to find the uh, the greater truth. I mean, it, it's striking to me that you, you spoke about people who have tried to raise an alarm with you in your work to tell you they're in trouble or they need help or they're against, they're against their will. Have, have you in any way managed to get help for these people? Have you had any success stories in that regard? Yeah, I mean, again, whether it's a capital S success or a small s success, um, you'd be the judge. But yeah, I mean, you look back on the reporting going back 10 years, the first piece that came out in the original series in the New York Times was a piece about a guy named Lang Long. Um, Lang Long, Cambodian guy, held against his will, shackled when he wasn't working on this vessel, sold vessel to vessel, pretty like brutal story. Um, put that on the front page of the New York Times huge change. And, and again, Lang Long trusted me with his story, you know, huge credit to him for taking a risk. It could have gone the other way and his life could have gotten worse by allowing me to put him on the front page. It got much better. You know, the government then stepped up, the Thai government arrested the captain, put him away, got him mental health, got him job training, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So on very human individual levels, there are concrete outcomes of seven-year investigation of a murder that was caught on cam camera, seven guys shot while guys were filming the whole thing and then celebrate at the end with, with selfies. You know, that took a brutal long time, but those guys were also convicted. So those are concrete outcomes that I think are good. Um, uh, and then the murky, the sort of policy litigation, um, kind of those outcomes we have to show. And that's one of the reasons I left the New York Times and, and sort of made my own journalism shop, the Outlaw Ocean Project, was so that we could really stick with the topic, but also really think about how can we empower stakeholders, key industry, government, law enforcement, whomever, to use the journalism to do something with it without becoming advocates, but nonetheless trying to like facilitate the journalism into change in a more concrete way. Well, Ian, this has absolutely flown by. It's been fascinating. I'm going to have a deeper look into the work you do. It's certainly courageous and very interesting. I mean, perhaps just before I let you get back today, you could just let people know where they can find uh, out more information about your work. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's theoutlawocean.com on, on the internet. Entirely our pleasure. Thank you very much for, very much for speaking to us. Thank you. Take care.